0: The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. So as we continue our study in Sermon on the Mount, we are in chapter 6, and Jesus is addressing prayer, the issue of prayer. And the Word of God has a lot to say about prayer. And I believe it teaches us about the power of prayer. And really, I believe everything I say, but I thought I'd throw that in there. I believe prayer makes a difference, folks. I believe prayer is effective, and I believe that prayer works. Remember when Abraham's servant prayed and Rebekah appeared? If you look at Genesis 24:15, Abraham's serpent, servant was sent to find a wife for Isaac. And he prayed and said, and it happened before he was finished speaking that, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now, if there's any single men out here, you know, you can pray and then go stand by the drinking fountain, see who, who shows up. I'm just kidding. But prayer was answered. Hannah prayed, remember? Samuel was born. Isaiah and Hezekiah prayed, and in 12 hours, 185,000 Assyrians were slain. Look at 2 Kings 19.35, it says, And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were corpses all dead. Ezra prayed by the river, and God answered him, And Ezra 8.21 said, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. And in verse 23 he says, So we fasted and entered our guard for this, and he answered our prayer. So I believe prayer works. I believe prayer is effective because there's so many recorded passages that shows us that. And also in James, we says, in 5.16, it says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And it says the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then in verse 17, sometimes we say, well, those are the prophets and so forth. You know, they're the ones that God answers. But look at what he's threw in there, and I think it's very good for us so we can understand where he... In verse 17, he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly, and it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three years and six months. So he throws that phrase into us to see these are not superheroes, but they're ordinary people like you and I. Now, the problem is every time you get into a discussion of prayer, you get into a certain area of difficulty, and at least for me, and I'll point some of those Things out because it's hard to comprehend how prayer truly functions. It's okay. She's just saying amen. That's all right. We don't mind. But the plan of sovereignty, just think God is sovereign, right? And it's difficult sometimes to deal with the truth because there are times where men pray in the scripture. And it says God, as it were, changed his mind, right? And there's other times in the Scripture where God says, I'm going to do it, and no matter what you say, I'm going to do it anyway. So it brings a very interesting issue. God is sovereign. Do we really need to pray? Isn't it apparent that God's will be done anyways, right? Doesn't he control everything? So the question always comes up and Why do I need to pray? Why do we have to have a prayer life in our Christian walk? Isn't God sovereign? Doesn't he know the beginning and the end and everything in the middle? Isn't everything predetermined? Isn't God in charge of everything? Then why are we praying? And then if God changes his mind, is he really sovereign? Or can we in our prayers really change God's mind and get him really to do something that he doesn't want to do, but because we annoy him with our prayers, our will prevails over God's will. So if we're persistent enough, he's going to answer the way we want it. And then if prayer is commanded, is he really sovereign? Do you see the issue of those? And I believe there's an answer to this. I just don't know where it is. Because I believe this is one of the great paradoxes in Scripture. And what this tells me that in the mind of God, it's infinitely beyond my own mind. It's impossible for us to solve. But not for God, folks. Not for God. The majesty of God, the incredible gap between the best of human thinking and the knowledge of God is you know his ways are not ways are our ways it's illustrated that we have no ability to resolve such apparent issues which in, appear to us which are contradictions right but there're no contradictions in the mind of God and it could be illustrated in so many ways folks let me ask you this who wrote we're studying the book of Matthew who wrote Matthew Probably get two answers. Some will say Matthew, some will say the Holy Spirit. Spirit, Well, which one's right? Matthew and the Holy Spirit? So what was it? Matthew writes down a verse, then the Holy Spirit writes down a verse, and they alternate? Or was Matthew nothing but a robot, and Holy Spirit just dictated things through him? The answer is no, because as you read the Gospels, Each one of them is a little different because it has Matthew's heart, soul, Matthew's feelings, Matthew's vocabulary. But it's the Holy Spirit too. So in our mind, it can't be 200%, right? It can't be 100% Matthew and 100% Holy Spirit. If I'm going to ask you who lives your Christian life, People always use Galatians 2.20 and they say, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. But yet, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.27, But I discipline my body and bring it to subjection. When I have preached to others, I must shoot myself, not become disqualified. So who's doing it? Who's bringing it to subjection? How can it be all of me and all of him? Can't be in our reasoning. And I ask you if Jesus was man or Jesus was God? And the answer is, yes. You know it's one, one of those questions is, is it colder in the mountains or colder in the winter? The answer is yes. He is God 100%. He is man 100%. And it's a paradox. Let me ask you another question. How did you become a Christian? A lot of people say, "Well, I was chosen before the beginning of the world, God knew everything was predetermined. He wrote my name in the Lamb's book of life. And then I ask you, how did you become a Christian? You say, well, I came and chose Jesus Christ. And it's interesting in John 6:44, where Jesus says, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him in, and I will raise him up on the last day." But at the same time, we find words of Jesus in Matthew 23: 37 says, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, How often I wanted to gather your children together as hens gathers her chicks under her wings but you were not willing. What do you mean? You said you're drawing men. They're not willing? And folks, I believe in both of these. And when we come to these kind of things in the Bible and prayer and sovereignty of God, don't make up something in the middle that you don't understand and just confuses everybody else. It's one of those things that we can't understand in our own mind. We shouldn't find some middle ground and let just let them exist. God is sovereign. God has predetermined the flow of the universe. God will do what he wants to do. But on the other hand, I want to tell you prayer works. And if you don't understand that, folks, don't let that Theology destroy your prayer life. A lot of people say, well, I don't want to pray because God's sovereign. He's going to do what he's going to do anyway. Why pray? Why pray? Because Jesus, being the Son of God, spent most of his time in prayer. He went away from the disciples and prayed. And he said in Luke 18, 1, said, then he spoke a parable to them and that men always ought to pray and not lose heart in First Thessalonians five seventeen, Paul says pray without ceasing folks it's interesting that disciples spent three and a half years with Jesus walking around preaching and sharing the gospel sharing the good news and so forth and it's interesting you don't find them asking Jesus can you teach us how to preach like you do teach us how to heal people, teach us how to witness properly. They don't ask any of those things. They don't ask, how do you get more followers on Instagram, like? Right? But they do ask one thing in Luke 11.1. He 1, said, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, this is exactly what he's doing here in Matthew 6 in the verses we're going to look at. Uh, 9 through 13, but really we're just going to kind of have an overview of this because last sermon was not completely finished. It was a real long one, so I broke it up, so this is the last part of last Sunday's sermon, okay? So, he and I want to also kind of say uh, we refer to this as the Lord's Prayer, but technically that's not 100% correct because... It would be impossible, you know, for example, for Jesus to pray, forgive our debts as we forgive others, and so forth. So this is a more disciples, or he's given us a model prayer for his disciples and people listening in that time. So technically, it's not a Lord's prayer in a sense, but it's a prayer or a skeleton for us. And he starts in verse 9 and says, in this manner, therefore pray. Pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day of our daily bread. And forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And again, today I just want to kind of give us of overlook of what we discussed because prayer is, we talk about it, we hear about it, but it's misunderstood and we are weak in our prayers and believers must learn how to pray and the reason we need to do that so we can experience the fullness of communion that we could have with God. And this is a marvelous pattern of prayer will teach us to do that. Because, folks, if we don't know how to pray and we don't know what to pray for, then it does little good for us to pray, doesn't it? So he was telling them their religious life isn't inadequate. And, again, he puts three illustrations, giving, fasting. Giving was not proper was studied later, fasting is not proper. But he's saying your praying is not proper. And what he's doing is he's reaffirming here. Remember I was telling you, kind of difficult to come up with the outline. So, And remember Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. So he's reaffirming what really in this prayer already is illustrated in the Old Testament. There are conditions of being a child of God and being in His kingdom. And as I said last Sunday, the greater emphasis out of those three, He places on prayer. And out of those three prayers, more important, folks, because giving is important, but you're going to, not going to give properly only when you, unless you have proper communion with God, that's when you're going to start properly giving. And right? And fasting? Fasting is useless apart from prayer. So Jesus is challenging the religion of his day, and really us, and saying prayers are just like you're giving. They're not, they're substandard. And folks, if we look around, there's really plenty of giving going on for self-glory. There's plenty of fasting going on just to call attention to themselves. And there's plenty of praying going on that doesn't recognize the biblical, basic, biblical, divine standards of a true prayer. In fact, the post Paul wrote to Romans in 8, 26, and this is to the church. So this is on our side, not this is after Jesus. And this is what he says to the Romans' church. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. We not know what to pray for as we ought, saying two things, you don't know how or you don't know what. Therefore, the Holy Spirit makes the intercessions for us. In other words, God is always aiding our prayers because we don't know how to pray or what to pray. Folks, and we have the same problem as those Pharisees of that day. And when we get into the actual prayer where it says, our Father, hallowed be your name, we'll we'll compare that to our everyday church. What's happening? How does that relate to our church? So he gives them a corrective and corrective to fasting, but he again he hits very specific on prayer. Why does he hit on there? Why is he pointing this out? Because as I said last Sunday, in the Jewish religion, and just Jewish nation, they had given a place of priority in their prayer life. Prayer was really, really important. But what happened is they abandoned the purity of the genuine prayer, Forsaken the real prayer for just routine rituals, as we studied, and he said those are all hypocritical prayers. They had little formulas at prayers. They prayed at set times, and you know that led to well, it's not 12 o'clock yet, so I'm just going to wait till 12 to pray. So I want to share some things from you this this morning from the historic Jewish prayer perspective because i don't want us to think that this is something brand new right this is not really a brand new prayer that jesus is telling them not totally it's simply a reaffirmation of something all old remember when we study you have heard it said but i tell you and he said i'm not coming to add anything so it's not going to be new but I'm coming to affirm the Old Testament. And when it comes to prayer, he affirms them, them things they should have known, things they should have incorporated in their prayers. And folks, you know, we be down on the Pharisees, but when it comes to prayer, I'll tell you what. Their teachings were pretty good, as we'll study. They aligned with the Word of God. They knew it. But what happens? Because true prayer is seeking the glory of God, but they want to be seen by men. Jesus pointed out last Sunday, folks, that their prayers were defective in their intended audience, and their content was also not there. So technically, we'll not begin, like I said, breakdown of the actual prayer until next week. But let me give you some historic Jewish prayer perspectives. First of all, Jews believed that they had the right to pray. Do we know why? Because God was their father. The Old Testament Jews believed they had the right to come to God. It was a major part of their life experience. They continually desired to come to God. Listen, because they believed God wanted them to come. And when they came, they didn't come like pagans do in fear and trembling. They came to him as a father. In fact, the rabbi says, the holy one earns for the prayers of the righteous. And Psalm 145.18 says, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. And Psalm 91.15 says, He shall call upon me, and I will answer. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. In other words, God revealed in Scripture, he wanted them to come and he wanted to hear their prayers. So, it comes as a priority in their life. Not only they believed it was a communication with God, but they believed it was a mighty weapon that could release God's power. And as I said before, they believe God not only wants to hear them, but he heard their prayers as we read in Psalm 65 too. Oh, you who hear prayer, not you will hear whatever, you hear prayer to all flesh will come. Remember we looked at some of the pagan gods, Baal. I don't believe they believed that because they kept calling on his name, calling on his name, and he wouldn't answer, and he was saying, busy on vacation or something like that. But our God hears our prayers and they believe that. And they believe prayer should incorporate certain elements. First element, they thought prayer should include love and praise. That is, when you go to God, there ought to be a sense of his worthiness and loving, and you come with adoration and praise in your prayers. In Psalm 34, 1, it says, I will bless their Lord all the times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And Psalm 51, 15 says, O oh Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. So they believe prayer should include praise. Isn't that good? Isn't that kind of sounds like, hallow be your name? Secondly, they wanted to incorporate gratitude and thanksgiving. And I'm kind of using Old Testament references because that's what they had at the time. If you look at Jonah 2.9, it says, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Part of that prayer was an offering of thanks with deep gratitude when they bring the sacrifices. And in fact, there's many verses in the Old Testament regarding this, but for the sake of time. And regarding thanks and thanksgiving, they're really, in their teaching, they had summed it all up in a lovely thought. And they said this, All prayers will someday be discontinued except the prayers of thanksgiving. All prayers will be discontinued one day except the prayers of thanksgiving. Think about it. When that day comes, we have nothing more to ask for. But we'll have everything to be thankful for. So they believed, incorporating thanksgiving. Thirdly, when they believed, when they come to God, there should be a sense of God's holiness, a sense of reverence. Don't just show up with His presence like, you don't treat him as a buddy. They did not treat God as He were men. And I believe it demonstrates in Isaiah 6, as he comes into view of God, he lists, sees this tremendous picture of God lifted upon his throne. His robe fills the temple. If you look at Isaiah 6, 3, it says, One cried out in one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory you find this in many prayers of David. Majesty and holiness of God. Not only that, they desired to obey God. That's their teachings. They're so far so good. When they come in prayer to God, they didn't come to Him originally in some ritualistic form or some superficial form or shallow approach like they've been doing now. And Psalm 119, is one, verse 172 says, My tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteous. All your commandments are righteous. So that means, in the heart of a true Jew, when he went, in the spirit, there was a spirit of obedience, desire to please God, desire to say, whatever it is you want me to do, whatever the will, your will is, whatever the situation, I will do, because all your commandments are righteous. So we have love, praise, gratitude, thanksgiving, recognition of God's holiness, desire to please and obey God. And there's another element that's tied into the concept of holiness it is the confession of sin. When they went to God, they knew that they were unclean. And they need to recognize that and confess their sins. Because anytime you enter the presence of God, True presence of God. You will see how sinful you are because he is holy. And again, that's demonstrated in Isaiah 6, 5. Isaiah is a prophet, a man of God, right? He's leading and preaching. And this is what he says. Woe is me, for I am done, because I am a man of unclean lips. He's been in the presence of the holy God. And I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. David, we see in his prayers, in order to get his heart right, in order for God to hear his prayers, he had to confess some sin. In Psalm 26, 6 says, I will wash my hands in innocence, so I will go about your altar, O Lord. He's confessing sin before he goes to the altar. And then in Psalm 24, it says, who will Who may ascend unto the hill of the Lord or may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul and not to an idol nor sworn deceitfully, who shall ascend to God's hill? Clean hands, clean heart, pure heart. And again, in order for your prayer to be effective, as we looked in James, if you look again in 5.16, it says, confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. How do you become righteous? Confess your sins. And Jews used to pray that way. And they really believed that the pure heart, when coming to God in pure heart and praying, will overturn his wrath. They also believed that their prayers are to be unselfish. Until this day, Jews in Israel have this sense of community. And I don't think we fully understand it. They had a sense of this national nation. And again, we could see it being used prideful. We're the sons of Abraham and so forth. They had this, but they had the sense of community. And rabbis really in their prayer books had a really interesting prayer And it went like this. Hear not, O Lord, the prayer of the traveler. Hear not, O Lord, the prayer of the traveler. What's one thing you ask God when you go on vacation? Or those folks that went to Florida? We want good weather, right? God, give us good weather. We're on vacation. We're traveling and all that stuff. But the rabbi said, Lord, don't hear that prayer because that's one guy on one trip. He may be praying for a good day, but we got some farmers over here that need some rain for their crops. Don't do something for somebody when that something is not going to impact or impact badly, mess up the needs, what's done for the majority. But when we get on our knees and we pray, we come with a whole bunch of personal pronouns, don't we? I, me, and my. And folks, if you read the prayer, I asked you to read it, there's not one I, me, or my in that prayer. Our Father, forgive our debts. Don't give me my daily bread, says give us Our daily bread. So you see, they had the sense of community. It's an unselfish prayer. And sometimes we have to, folks, sacrifice what might be, in our minds, best for us. But we need to look at God's greater plan. What's the best for my Christian community that I live in? Lord, you do what advances your cause among the people, not what I want personally. And a lot of prayers in our churches today are self-centered. And I'm not talking about true needs, right? There's a lot of name it and claim it. We treat God as a Aladdin, if you would, right? Genie in the bottle. But, folks, there's community of prayer. There was unselfishness in their prayers. And do what's best for the whole church, not just one particular person. Do what's best for your people. And, folks, again, not singular pronouns in this prayer in Chapter 6. Next thing they believe, the elements of prayer include prayer. They talk about perseverance. And we talked about this a little bit yesterday, and I kind of wanted to clear it up. But we're just to continue to pray. We continue to pray till we get an answer. Don't give up. Now, this is not a repetition prayer. Perseverance and repetitions that God warned us earlier, as last Sunday we talked about, don't mumble things or repeat things so many times. Those are two different things. But they did believe in perseverance. Remember, I gave you an example. Jesus prayed three times in the garden. Remember, Apostle Paul. Prayed three times to take the thorn away. Well, also in the, New Te- in the Old Testament, remember when the, Israel was going out of Egypt and they created a little calf? And they started worshiping that calf, that golden calf. Moses, bless his heart, prayed for 40 days. For 40 days. Look at what it says in Deuteronomy 9.25. Thus I prostrated myself before the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. I prostrated myself because the Lord had said he would destroy you. He would destroy us. Because you went, started worshiping some idol. Therefore I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your inheritance whom you have redeemed through your greatness and who you brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. See, there's asking God to change his mind. But then in the second verse in 26, you see, it gives him, who's the prayer? Your people, your inheritance. You have redeemed through your greatness. Not like, God, we made it this far. You know, been walking around for a while. Look what I did. It says, God, this is all you. So they believed in perseverance. Another element, there's any many, but this will be my final one, the elements is humility. And the greatest illustrations of this will be the very prayer of God, Lord Jesus Christ in the garden. Matthew 26, 42, he says, again, a second time he went and prayed and says, Oh, Father, if this cup pass away from me unless I drink it, your will will be done. This is the heart of the truest prayer. And, folks, I told you, you need to be honest in the prayers. Don't try to be fake. Oh, God, I want your will. No, God, I want it my way. You see my heart. Maybe it's the selfish heart but do what you think is best. That's how we need to be honest in our prayers. Because you say, God, I, I want your will, but in your heart. God sees your heart. You don't want that will. You're just saying it because the Bible tells you to do it. God, change my heart if it's not right, right? Create a clean heart in me, oh God. If this is not your will, show me what your will is. But something went wrong. And the Jewish prayer became hypocritical, as Jesus pointed out in verses 5 through 8. Because all they wanted to do in their prayer life was to be seen by men. They weren't talking to God anymore. They weren't saying, Oh Father, hallowed be your name. They were selfish, they were trying to gain things for their own ends, trying to make public display of things. And God says, I'm not going to hear their prayer. I'm not going to answer their prayer. And then in that verse 8, it shows that they had pride in their heart. And all those things, And Jesus says, I'm just going to reaffirm the things I've been telling you in the Old Testament. So in this prayer, folks, as we get into the study, Jesus is not saying anything totally new. To these people, although he gives new richness to everything he says. And sometimes it's like that with us. We have the Word of God, we have the right teachings, but we don't pay attention to it. It's right there. Why? Because we don't study God's Word as we should, and that's what they weren't doing. Go back to God's Word. Folks, our prayers when we talk to God, right? We're talking to God. How do you think God talks back? Right here. Oh God I don't know. He also teaches us how and what to pray for, right? So we can pray properly. And again, when God answers our prayers, it shouldn't be a surprise. Oh, God answer. It should be God you should be surprised when God does not answer our prayers. So he's just reinstating these basic truths that already they had. And what's interesting to me is not only it was in the Old Testament, it was in their own traditional teachings. So not only they were ignoring the Word of God, they were ignoring their own traditional teachings, which really aligned with the Word of God too. And folks, let me add another footnote here. Even though the Lord gives us this instructions on how to pray... Instead of taking this prayer and using it to learn how to pray, a lot of churches just recite it, right? We just recite the prayer. And I can remember my life when I just recite the prayer, but that's not the point here. Folks, uh, there's people that say, I believe this prayer is to be recited at certain, you know, certain ceremonial church events or whatever. No, I don't believe that. I think it's fine to recite it, uh, just like you read any part of the Bible, to remember it. But I'll give you several reasons so we all kind of on the same page why it's not to be your side. Number one, this prayer is only recorded twice in the Scripture, what we call the Lord's Prayer. Here in Matthew and in Luke 11. And folks, it differs in both places. They're kind of the same, but the words are different. Now, if God wanted us to recite this prayer, wouldn't He give it exactly the same? And one He says, Forgive us our debts. And the other one says, Forgive us our trespasses. In other words, if I were to wrote a routine prayer, wouldn't I at least write it the same way? Would my teaching be consistent here in the Sermon on the Mount? And then when the Disciples asked them to teach us to pray. And secondly, in Luke one, as Luke 11:1 as we read, the disciples said, "Lord, teach us to pray." They didn't say, "Lord, teach us a prayer." Teach us to pray. It's one thing, folks, to have a prayer book as they did and open it and just read it. It's something else to know how to pray. And folks, wouldn't it be kind of silly when just in verse 7 he says, you know, they come to me with their vain repetitions, and then he says, repeat this prayer. says, I don't like vain repetitions and so forth, but repeat after me. No. I'll be ridiculous. And folks, thirdly, on no occasion in the entire New Testament, Gospels, Acts, Epistles, wherever you want, this prayer is ever repeated by anybody. It's not a prayer that we should just recite. It's not to be made a ritual. What it is is a model for every prayer. It's a model. It's a skeleton which you are to put meat and bones and flesh, and as we'll go through the study, you will see. For example, when I prepare a sermon, I try to create an outline, right? And then I put meat on it. If I came here and just read you my outline, my sermon would probably be five minutes and you'd be all happy, but you won't learn very much. It's a skeleton. You've got to put flesh and bones on it. And what Jesus is doing this is giving us the basic elements of prayer and outline. And folks, you know, the reason I say it, keep repeating, this prayer is just, now that I'm studying it more deeply, I'm kind of stuck, like, because it just says so much here. You know, this prayer, I would compare to a perfect sermon, right? It's short, and it says everything that you need to say. No human mind would be able to come up or capable of coming up of this prayer that Jesus gives us the model or pattern for praying. So now if we memorize it, it's okay to memorize it, get in your head just as an outline. You will see that this prayer is very tremendous. So I ask you to look and read it, right? And then you would see that every line, every, every, everything there is, is always focused on God. So, for example, we can approach it one way. It says, for example, "Our Father." What is that talk, talks about? That means father-child relationship. Hallowed by Thy name. Deity worshiper relationship to God. The kingdom come. He's the sovereign, and we we are His servants. The will be done. We're He's the master. We're the servants. We're doing His will. Give us a daily bread. He's our benefactor. He provides provision for us. He's the Father, loving Father, that provides for us. Forgive us our trespassing. That talks about the Savior-sinner relationship. Lead us not into temptation. He's our guide. Or we can approach it, says, Father, that's the family spirit. Hallowed by thy name, reverend spirit. We are to kingdom come. We are a loyal spirit. We're waiting on that kingdom. We'll be done. That means we're submissive, submissive spirit. Again, give us our daily bread. That's dependent spirit. Forgive trespasses. We to have repentant confession of sin. Spirit. Thine is the kingdom and the power. Folks, that's the confident spirit, triumphant spirit. He's coming. All glory to God. What's the purpose of prayer? Hallowed the name of God to bring his kingdom. He's the God. He's the king. Given bread, provision. Pardon our sins. Pardon. There's so many things. And they all revolve around God, not us. His kingdom come, not my kingdom. Right? Your will be done. So what's my job? To make sure that is happening here on earth. His will is always gets done on heaven. Does his will always get done on earth? No. But if we're servants, that's what we're out to do. Again, folks, only in the mind of God, and I don't want to kind of repeat myself, but folks, this prayer, only God could have conceived this because there's so much reaching incredible thoughts compressed into this little, tiny section of Scripture. And I'm telling you, no man could have done it. So, folks, if you think prayer is all about you, you miss the point. You miss the point. Prayer is not about you, not about your wants, not about your needs. As we read in John 14:13 last night, uh, last Sunday. And whatever you may ask in my name, I will do. And that's when we typically stop, right? He's the genie in the bottle. No, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And the reason we pray, you pray, and God answers is to put himself on display, folks. God is the only one that deserves any kind of glory. And folks, when we pray for somebody that's not saved, we come to God and we pray relative, friend, we want them to be saved, and God saves that person. It's not for your sake. It's not for their sake. It's to show the power of salvation comes through God. And when we pray to have a physical need or material need met, it's not because God wants you to have it. It's not because you need it. It's that, that you may see that God meet need needs and his name be glorified. And it's interesting, this whole prayer, again, is about God. And adoring God, giving him praise, thanksgiving. Look, a prayer begins, our Father in heaven. That's adoring God, isn't it? And it ends with, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. What does it end with? Also adoring God. And everything in the middle is about God. So God is saying, don't stand in the streets, don't stand on the corners, don't stand in the synagogues to be seen by men, but go in secret. Your father sees what's in secret and he'll reward you. And then he instructs them or reminds them how to pray. And that's what we'll get into next Sunday. In all prayer, folks, if you get anything out of today, this is what I want you to get. Prayer is not about you. Prayer is all about giving God the glory. And if you don't get that, I said about 50 different ways, you should. Write it down. Prayer is not about you. Prayer is giving God the glory to display his glory for us. Let's pray.